All right, we have a bunch of things today. So busy day today, the two quizzes, the iTunes quiz, if you haven't already taken that, and quiz number six are up and available through the end of the day or six o'clock tomorrow morning. So you'll have a chance to take those if you have not already. Uh, if you're doing the exam replacement, that's due today as well or six o'clock tomorrow morning. Um, of course, if you're going to turn me in something big that I need, you can't turn in online, I, if you need it now or sometime, drop it off at my office later today. If you're something you're going to submit digitally that you can, um, you can submit that on D2L. If you go into the drop boxes, I reopened that extra credit drop box we used at the beginning of the semester. And you can resubmit, you can submit it there. So if you're going to submit something digitally, you can certainly still do it online through 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. I did open that drop box for you. Um, coming up later this week, we have homework 7, uh, which is due Friday. And then I will get those back to you by early Monday morning so you can take a look at them. Uh, see so if you have any last minute checks on it if you want to see since a lot of that material will be covered on the exam which is Monday as well as when the extra credit assignment is due and then the third article review is due the Wednesday before Thanksgiving so lots of stuff coming up lots of stuff coming up now but we're less than a month away from the final so it's, it's almost all over um, on the assignments I just handed back a whole bunch of them I did want to let you know on the one that the galactic cluster one we did where you matched up everything, it didn't work out the way quite the way I thought it would. So there was like one person who had the numbers the close to what I expected to get. So I think I have to redo my explanation. So that's why if you did everything and answered everything, you got 10 out of 10. If you skipped answering something, you might have lost a point or two. So that's why everybody got a 10 out of 10. It doesn't mean your numbers are perfect. Um, in fact, in many cases, they were still way off. But I think I need to re-explain it or go through a better example in class before having you do it because I think that was the problem with that. So everybody pretty much, if you did it and you tried answering the questions, you got 10 out of 10 out of it. So just didn't want you thinking that means you got them all perfect. But they didn't come out near as close as I expected them to what you, sh what you, should, have got, what you should have gotten. But I'm not going to penalize you for my, my problem. So. On this, uh, on all, well, especially the first table. I mean, I'm just looking at looking at the first set of numbers, especially. A lot of those should be negative. The last four, three or three of the last four, or four of the last five should be negative. And I only had like one or two people that gave me any negatives down there. So I don't know if it was just a misreading of it or something on it, or I just didn't explain something clearly enough. But I will try something a little different when I try this the next semester. But it was really off there, and it threw off a lot of the other numbers to some extent, not as much, those ones especially, and the absolute magnitudes in many cases were way off. But when I found the first one way off, when I knew the first number was way off, I kind of just glanced at everything else and stopped there and just said, I'm just going to give them credit instead of trying to redo the whole, right, redo the whole lab. So, so essentially, you got a, free, got a free lab on it. As long as you tried everything, you got, you got 10 points. Yay! But if anyone wants to see the right numbers, I'll be ha I don't have them with me now. I can bring them or get you a copy of what, you're, what, you, should be, what you should be getting. All right. Okay, people. Thank you. All right. Questions on that? Everything else should be back graded and up on D2L for you. So grades should be completely updated as of this morning. Everything that we've done and that's been turned in is being graded and is up there for you. So your grade should be completely, completely up to date on that. All right. Oh. Picture of the day for today then is, and what is the title? I knocked the title off the screen there. The Aurora, Aurora and Unusual Clouds over Iceland. 
So, got another set of aurora here. We've looked at some of that before, I believe. You've got the greenish glow in the atmosphere, and you see some over here. And the way it's coming out of the glacier almost looks like it's erupting. You've got a little bit more over here heading towards this object. Actually, the moon might look like the sun. If you took a quick image, it might be the sun, but this was actually taken at night and had a, had a longer exposure to be able to really see the aurora and to be able to pick up the stars. And the moon is then vastly overexposed in this section. So you're actually seeing the moon, the moon here. Now the aurora we talked about before, that is the uh, particles from the sun, particles from the sun traveling to the earth, striking the earth's magnetic field, kind of getting funneled around it and down and striking in towards the north magnetic pole or south magnetic pole of the earth. And when they strike the molecules in the atmosphere, they cause them to glow. So those molecules will glow and in this case the molecules in our atmosphere like hydrogen glows red out in space. Now there's not a lot of hydrogen in our atmosphere so we don't see red glow. There's a lot of oxygen and we see a greenish glow from the excited oxygen atoms. So we're able to see that. The other thing that's being pointed out and you can see one of them is, is the clouds. Some of the cloud, unusual cloud structures that you see here. Uh, those are called, that's called a lenticular cloud. And I'm, I'm not the expert on clouds or uh, meteorology, but that's an unusual cloud formation that from what I read is what forms when you're going over like a big mountain. So when you have the air currents and the water vapor going over a mountain, you get an unusual cloud formation. The other thing that you see right above it, and I'm going to have to turn off the light, I believe, so you can see it a little bit better, is an iridescent cloud where you actually see the, actually get sort of the rainbow effect here. Let's see how well you can see that comes up pretty good on the screen. I don't know how well it is up in here, but you can sort of see a little bit of sort of the rainbow coloring where that's diffraction of light. So the light is actually getting diffracted almost like going through a prism in part of the particles in the cloud and actually gives you a little rainbow effect around here. And you can actually see that around some clouds too. So you managed to capture a number of different things in this image, including the aurora, the uh, unusual, the lenticular cloud, sort of fits in since we were talking about lenticular galaxies last time. Uh, lenticular just meaning lens-like. So has to, do with, has to do with looking like a lens, not anything, anything else with it. And then the iridescent cloud, we would get that shimmering almost rainbow effect on it. Alright, so let me get you some light back on here. Question? Questions? Oh, it's Monday. We're all asleep, right? Okay. All right. Well, let's go back to galaxies then. We were looking at, we looked at all the different normal galaxies. We're going to look at the distances again, finish up our distance scale, and then go on and look at the unusual galaxies, at the um, active galaxies. So I'd sort of left you off here on Friday. I showed you this and then I kind of stopped. This is uh, what we call Hubble's Law. Hubble's Law. Uh, found by uh, Edwin Hubble pushing almost 100 years ago now. And Edwin Hubble, familiar name to people, at least Hubble is, right? Hubble Space Telescope is named after him. So one of the big things he did was to measure galaxies and he found that there was a relationship between the Doppler shift of the galaxy. Okay, it's Monday morning, right? <laughs> Try again. The Doppler shift of the galaxy, how fast it's, which means tell us how fast it's moving, and how far away it was. 
Remember we had all sorts of ways of determining distances? So we used some of those methods to determine how far away the galaxy was. And we measured the Doppler shift. So you might find that in a close by galaxy, like the Virgo, one of the galaxies in Virgo, they're only 17 million parsecs away. Only about, what is that, about 50, 50, 60 million light years. So relatively close by galactic standards. And the lines are shifted a tiny bit, but not very much from where they would normally have been. As you go further away and look at more distant clusters, more and more distant, you've got to finally point out where the galaxy is that you're actually looking at. You notice that these lines, the same pair of lines that you see in this galaxy, there they are again in this galaxy, but they're shifted further to the red. Here they are in this galaxy, shifted even further, and again, and again, this pair way over here have been shifted way off into the red part, red part of the spectrum from where they should be. They should be, if we just formed them in a laboratory, they should be all over here. They should be all exactly at the same wavelength. The shift is telling us their velocity. And that's the Doppler effect that we talked about before. So what that means is that all these galaxies are then moving away from us. So first thing Hubble found was that all the galaxies are moving away from us with only a couple of exceptions. No. The ones that like Andromeda that's actually moving towards us. Andromeda is close enough that its motion within our cluster is a lot greater than the universal expansion. So we don't see that it's, that it's moving away. We don't see that. It's actually got a higher velocity towards us than its expansion velocity away. And net, it's actually coming towards us. When you get to much more distant galaxies, they're all moving further away. And, or moving, moving away from us, and the further away they are, the more distant ones, the faster they're moving away from us. So the shift gets a lot larger, larger Doppler shift, they're moving faster. The distance is getting larger, 17 million parsecs here up to almost 900 million parsecs away. So there's a relationship we found between the distance and the motion. Now this is a very good thing, right? This makes it very easy to find the distances because all we have to do is have enough light from that galaxy, not from a star, but from the entire galaxy to be able to measure, make a spectrum of it. So if that galaxy is, big, is bright enough that we can get a spectrum of it, there's enough light that we can spread that light out into a spectrum, we now have a good way of getting the distance because all we have to do is measure the spectrum, find some of the, identify a few spectral lines, find out how far they are shifted, and all of a sudden we have the distance. So a great way to get the distance to the galaxies. Pretty big. Could, could be a couple, could be a hundred million or so, yeah. Could be something like that. It's pretty big error estimates on these. We don't have accurate, you know, it's not that you're gonna be able to go there and travel and travel 870 uh, million parsecs and not find out you still got 30, 50, 100 par million parsecs, not parsecs, but million parsecs to go. So the errors, uh, some of the errors in astronomy, sometimes when you get things to a factor of two, you're doing real good. Yeah. Sounds horrible for us, right? Yeah. If you determine your weight to a factor of two, that's horrible, right? You might be 150 pounds, you might be 300 pounds, you might be 775 pounds. That's a big difference, right? But in terms of measuring, say, the mass of a galaxy, well, it might be 200 million solar masses. Maybe it's 300 million. Maybe it's 150. Well, that's still pretty good estimates when you're talking about how accurately we can measure them. 
So yes, a good point that our, our numbers are estimates, but there are pretty big errors attached to them still. And part of that is still because Hubble's law still depends on some kind of calibration. We've got to find out the distances to some of these galaxies first before we can use it. So here's just showing the relation that Hubble would have found in the first place. These are the five galaxies that we had on the previous screen, those five galaxies. And if you plot their distance that's been measured by some method, not by Hubble's law, but by some other method, and the recessional velocity. How many kilometers a second are they receding away from us? And you find they fit pretty well a straight line. You can add more, add more galaxies in, and you find it fits very well. So that's giving you an idea of some of these errors. You know, how accurately are you measuring the velocity? Could it be off a little bit in one direction or the other? Yeah. How accurately did you measure the distances especially? So could you have mismeasured the distance and really it was a little closer or really it was a little further away? Certainly. So there are some big errors there, but on average when you look at not just five galaxies, not just uh, 20 or so galaxies, but when you start looking at hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of galaxies, all those little errors kind of wash out. So you'll end up getting rid of the, losing the errors. The errors will end up essentially disappearing. You'll minimize the amount of error by looking at a big, large sample of galaxies. And that's what astronomers have done. Instead of looking at just you know, this many and saying we're done, you're continually refining it. Because what you really want to do is find this line. Because this line is now what's going to tell you the distance. Because once you have this line and you know exactly what it is, or as accurately as you can, all you've got to do is measure a velocity of a star. What's its Doppler shift? Well, it's 50,000 kilometers per second. That comes over here to the line and that drops down and that's, you know, 800 million parsecs away. So, very easy to get distances to very far away objects. And you can just extend this out as you measure more and more distant galaxies. So you can look for even higher velocities. And you can get yourself out to the edge of the universe. The most the most distant objects that are visible, you can now determine distances to. So you recall our last step was what? The type one, type 1 supernovae. And it got us, what did I say, about a third of the way out? Quarter to a third of the way out to the edge of the universe? So still missing a big chunk of the universe. Now we've got the rest of it. So if we know Hubble's law, if we know exactly the positioning of this line, then we can determine distances all the way out to the edge of the universe. So give you a nice equation here. What is Hubble's law? Well, Hubble's law is given with a, I'm going to write it, I've got it written out there on the screen a little bit more. I'm going to summarize it a little more equation form here. Just says that the velocity of recession, how fast it's receding away from us, is equal to some number. Hubble's constant. Right? Hubble determined it, so he gets to name the constant. The constant gets named after him times the distance. So, nice easy equation, right? No logarithms like the magnitude ones that we had to use. So, very easy one. All you have to do is measure the velocity, divide it by Hubble's constant, whatever that value is, and find out what the distance is. So, measure a velocity, get a distance very easily. The problem is that Hubble's constant is somewhere in the range of about 50 to 80 kilometers per second per megaparsec. It's a pretty big range. It's narrowed down quite a bit. 
20, 20, 25 years ago, it would have been more in the range of, there was a group of astronomers who said it was you know, more like 50, and there was a group of astronomers who said it was 150. Well, finer measurements have now narrowed it down, and we've now got it narrowed down a little bit better. The group that happened to be on the 50 side was closer to being correct. So, but it's still a pretty, not quite a factor of two, but still, it's a big difference in your, in, your velocity, in your distance determination, whether it's 50, whether it's 60, 70, 80, or whether we're still slightly off here and maybe it's a little bit further to either side. So, it does give us a way of measuring distances. It works really well for the most distant objects. It doesn't work very good for nearby objects. It's not going to help us in the slightest for measuring a star within our galaxy. Right? But we can measure the Doppler shift. But those stars in our galaxy, they're bound together gravitationally, so they're not expanding. When we talk about the expansion of the universe, which is what we're seeing here, the individual galaxies aren't expanding. They're all bound together gravitationally. Just like the Earth is bound together gravitationally, the Earth isn't slowly expanding as the universe expands. It's gravitationally bound. It stays the same. But the space between them is what's expanding. So the space between galaxies is what is actually getting larger and larger. And at this rate, and depending on how many megaparsecs you weigh, how many millions of parsecs away you are, it's 50 to 100, 50 to 80 kilometers every second for each megaparsec. So when you're talking hundreds of megaparsecs, these things are zipping away from us at speeds you know, we, don't, we don't imagine. Right? Now 50 kilometers per second, everybody's gone that fast, right? 50 kilometers per hour maybe, but 50 kilometers per second, that's a pretty good distance. That's a I mean, pretty good velocity. The other thing, as I said, it only works well for the more distant galaxies. That's because when you have galaxies and you've got a nice little, uh, I can't draw today, can I? It's Monday. It is Monday, isn't it? Let's try to draw a little, I should just draw elliptical galaxies, right? Elliptical galaxies. You've got a bunch of elliptical galaxies in a cluster. And that whole cluster is moving away, with the, away from us at some velocity. That's what we're looking for. Within that cluster, it's not just this whole cluster sitting there and moving away from us. Right? This, this galaxy is orbiting around and it may be coming towards us. This one might be coming away. If you're in a nearby galaxy, this velocity may be small. Right? Not very big. Only a few kilometers per second. So tens of kilometers per second, 10 to 100 kilometers per second. Relatively small, but this galaxy may be coming towards us. So let's just say, let's do 100 kilometers per second for the overall cluster. But let's say this one's coming towards us at 120 kilometers per second. We're not at relativistic speed, so we can add them like Newton says. So this is 150 kilometers per second that way. This one is 120 kilometers per second this way. So when we're down here observing, for this one we're going to see it coming towards us at 20 kilometers per second. We see the combination of the two motions. When you get further away, this is a lot bigger. This might be 1,000. No, that's 100. How about that's 1,000? That might be 1,000 kilometers per second. These velocities really haven't changed much. So this is still, it's still within the cluster. It's going at 120 kilometers per second. What are we going to see? We're going to see 1,000 that way and 120 this way. And our observer is then going to see 880 
away. One number changes as you get further and further away. This is going to get bigger. 100, 1,000, 10,000. The numbers within the cluster are going to stay about the same. They're just all bound together and they're moving around. So can you, can you see, I mean, there, as you get towards nearby, that makes a big difference. If you're only moving away at 100 kilometers per second and random motions are about that same value, it's going to mess up your measurements. You're not going to get a good distance determination. The further away it gets, when you start talking about 10,000 kilometers per second, do you really care if it's going 100 extra this way or that way? It doesn't make any difference. It's such a small percentage of your total velocity, it doesn't change what you're going to measure. The further away you get, and that's what the last statement on there is trying to tell you, that it doesn't really matter. It only works when you get out to these very distant galaxies. And this is why Andromeda is moving towards us, you know, even though the universe is expanding. Every galaxy should be moving away. Andromeda within the cluster, its velocity within that cluster is faster than its velocity of expansion, the velocity of expansion of the universe at that distance. I lose everybody? Okay, I'm gonna try again. I'm gonna try again. No, I wanna make sure. I wanna make sure you're you're set on it. I'm trying let me think of a see if I can come up with a good way to I mean you did a good job explaining Yes, sir. You got a you got a good example for me? I got one I saw one on a documentary. Okay. Go ahead. A little baby balloon and they put dots on it. Okay. And they blew it up. Mm-hmm. And it's not and they kinda all spread apart from one another right. because the universe is expanding. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of an easier way to think about it, I guess. Okay. That helps, but that's, I don't know if that helps with the individual velocities that I'm trying to, because that doesn't have, the little dots aren't moving relative to each other. That's the only thing. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. They're all moving this They're all moving away. So this whole cluster is moving away at, say, 100 kilometers per second. But then but, but they're orbiting around each other, like Mercury's orbiting around. Right. And sometimes they might be orbiting so that they're coming towards us faster than the whole cluster is moving away. So they might be orbiting faster towards us. Right. At that time. And then maybe millions of years later, it's going away from us. So it's not changing. It's not really coming towards us any more than it's just at that moment it is. And that's why we think Andromeda would be is actually part of our cluster, so it's a little bit different. It's actually part of our own cluster. I'm talking when you get a little bit further away than that. But when you when you're closer, when it's closer to you, this number is small. But when it's further away, it's easier easier to determine the distance. It's easier to determine the distance with Hubble's law. Everything else is the other way around. But Hubble's law, it's because this becomes a thousand, and then it becomes ten thousand. If I subtract 120 from ten thousand. What do I get? 9,000, uh, what, 880? If you're supposed to be getting 10,000 and you're getting 9,880, you're doing pretty good. If you're supposed to be getting 100 in that direction and you're getting 20 in this direction, something's way off. Help a little more? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Why is that, that's the, expand, that's the, uni, the entire universe expanding. That's the universe is the space between the galaxies is getting bigger. Uh, this comes back to your, this is the good balloon one, the good balloon analogy. You take a balloon, draw little dots on it, and start blowing it up. If you measure the distances between them, 
you find that the ones further away are getting apart, are actually getting apart faster. No. Just like a balloon, where's the center of the balloon? Where's the center of the surface of the balloon? Let's put it that way. There isn't one. Right? Ignore the fact that you've got to blow up the balloon. That, doesn't, that, that kind of throws it a little bit. You can, well, the, well, you're blowing it up, right? But overall, there is no center to this. Where's the center to the surface of the Earth? We know where the center of the Earth is, but where's the center of, of the surface? There isn't one. <laughs> and, and the universe is the same way. Think, think of the universe as we're stuck on the surface of a great balloon. So we're stuck within it. <laughs> and it's expanding, but there's no center. So there's no, cen- there's no center to the universe. There is no center. How do you know it's expanding? How do we know it's expanding? Because we measure all these Doppler shifts. Everything's moving away from us. Well, the, the objects are moving away from us. Right. No, we don't know this. You can't, no. You, you only know like, where the stars are. Right, well, all we know is where the material is. Yes, that's correct. Good. Yes, sir? Around, you mean like us here? Yeah. No. Anything that's gravitationally, I mean, you're, you've got so much gravity bound here. It's not like the, within the galaxy, everything is bound together. So like the space between you and me isn't, isn't expanding. It perhaps, it perhaps it could. That could be a possibility that there's something, you know. There's a lot that we don't know when we get out that far, and we'll see that in the coming chapters because there's a lot of, a lot of stuff that we don't know. I'm going to tell you the best we know at this time, but not everything that we, not everything is correct, and not everything will be right five years from now or ten years from now. All right. So, there's back to our distance ladder. Last time you have to look at that. Unless I ask you to write it on the draw it or sketch something about it on the exam or the final or well you've seen it so many times that would certainly be a good thing. I won't promise you it's going to be there, but it would certainly be a good thing to do, wouldn't it? How many times have you seen this stupid graph, right? (laughs) Now I don't have to do a question because now everybody's going to study it, so I don't have to put it on because everybody'll know it. (laughs) I'm cruel, aren't I? Now that I've told you I won't do it, I might go, oh boy, this, you know, forget it, right? <laughs> now you have no clue whether it's going to be on there or not. So, distances. We've got par- um, radar, right? We can use that within our solar system, very, very close to us. We can use parallax for the nearby stars. We can use spectroscopic parallax for the even more distant stars. When we get out further, we can look at things like the variable stars, the Cepheids and the Lyrae. We're starting to get to other galaxies now. Very nearby galaxies, but we're getting there. The Tully-Fisher relationship, the rotation of the galaxy told us something about its luminosity. And the standard candles, the uh, supernovae especially, type 1 supernovae, got us out to a billion parsecs, you know, 3 billion light years out of about 14 billion light years diameter size for the distance for the most distant objects we can measure in the universe. But you notice these are all useful within, right? Once you get beyond about a billion parsecs, those supernovae are going to be very hard to find. Not that they're not there. They're just, they're dimmed so much over that great distance we can't see them. So all of these are useful within a certain amount. These are useful beyond. This is useful beyond. You've got to get out to about 100 million parsecs. You've got to get out to about here. And then you have 
the dominant velocity is the recessional velocity, is the expansion of the universe. So that's the dominant thing that we can see is that. So that works very well beyond 100 million parsecs and as far as you go. If you can find the galaxy, you can now determine the distance to it. As long as you know this number. Well, we know it better than we used to. We still don't know it very well. You know, it's not known to 5% or 10% even. It's still a big range, but it's all we got. You know, how else are we going to go measure the distance to a galaxy 13 billion light years away? Got a real long tape measure? <laughs> yeah. Real, real long tape measure to try. That's the only way we're going to be able to do it, so we have to use what we've got. All right. So that's Hubble's law. Now, last part of this chapter is on active galaxies. Um, we had normal galaxies. That's what we were talked about. I went through all the different spirals, the ellipticals, the lenticulars, the irregulars. Those were normal galaxies. There is about a quarter of the galaxies that don't fit that very well. And they're really too bright. They're a lot brighter. They're emitting a lot more energy. And in many cases, emitting different ty- kinds of energy than a typical galaxy. If we look at a regular galaxy, a, what we call a normal galaxy, we get a spectrum much like this. You might recognize that from earlier when we talked about stars, when we talked about spectra, the black body spectrum. That's just the spectrum of a star. So a normal galaxy, most of the light that we see is from stars. So when you add up all those stars together, you get the spectrum that looks like a great star. Drops off very quickly towards X-rays and gamma rays. Most stars don't emit a lot over there. Drops off a little more slowly out towards radio waves and peaks somewhere in the visible part of the spectrum. So that's what we see from a normal galaxy. An active galaxy might look in many ways like a normal galaxy, but when you take a spectrum of it, again across the entire spectrum, you see that X-rays, it emits a lot of X-rays. Normal galaxy, way down here by the time you get there. Active galaxy, way up here, emitting a lot of energy. More visible light, more infrared, even more in the radio. So everywhere across the board, it's emitting much more energy than the normal galaxy. So it's the luminosity, how bright it is. They actually appear brighter than a normal galaxy. Nice, they stand out better, right? We can see these, some of these things at further distances. And they emit different types of radiation. Typical galaxy, again, looks like a great, great conglomeration of stars. Put all those stars together, you get what looks like to your telescope as a great star. Right? Okay, it's got a shape of a galaxy, but the spectrum-wise, it actually looks like a great star. Active galaxies look completely different. Emitting a lot of radio waves, emitting a lot of x-rays that you would not be getting from a normal galaxy. Now, we have some different types here. Uh, We'll come to the types in a second, but what we call is non-stellar radiation. Most galaxies, most normal galaxies emit stellar radiation. Radiation of stars. Take all those stars, hundreds of millions of stars, hundreds of billions of stars in that galaxy, add up all their radiation, and that's essentially what you get from a typical normal galaxy. It looks like the spectrum of a great star. Most of these Many of these uh, galaxies that are emitting non-stellar radiation, there's some other ones too. There's some that are called starburst galaxies that are nothing not related to the candy. But although you think the M&M Mars has some kind of thing, they got Mars bars and you know all this stuff. So 
and, and starburst galaxies, so they must have gotten in with the astronomers to get the naming, naming down. But there are some active galaxies that we call starburst galaxies. These are separate. These are ones that are actually due to collisions, two galaxies colliding, two galaxies interacting gravitationally. So smashing two galaxies together is going to create a big burst of star formation, hence the name a starburst galaxy. It's not that the stars are bursting or exploding eventually. Yeah. That could eventually become something, something like that, yeah. It certainly is a possibility because all the gas clouds in both are going to collide together. And that will trigger a lot of star formation, a lot more than is normally going on in a typical galaxy. So in these starburst galaxies, you're seeing not a lot, of, not a lot from the center, not a lot from the core, right? The black hole at the center of the galaxy, like in ours. What you're seeing is extra radiation from all over the galaxy. So these are one type of active galaxy that are a little simpler to explain, but they really don't have anything to do with what's going on down at the core of the galaxy. The ones we really want to look at is where something's going on down in the galactic center. There's something unusual going on there, right? Black hole, right? I already talked about that in terms of ours. But yeah, a black hole down there that is causing it to emit a lot more energy at a lot different wavelengths than you'd normally expect. A starburst galaxy wouldn't have that. Starburst galaxy is producing lots of stars. So it would still look like the spectrum of stars. It wouldn't have all this stuff going down at the center and that's what we're really, really looking at here. So, a couple different types here. We have Seifert galaxies as one type, radio galaxies and quasars. So, Seifert galaxies, those are ones that look like a spiral galaxy. There's, there's an image of one there. Doesn't look all that different than some of the spiral galaxies that we looked at. Um, you've got a core there, you can see some kind of spiral, spiral structure to it. Uh, pretty tightly wound there. But when you measure how much energy is coming from that core, it's not just a little bit more. It's not just about 10% more, twice as much. 10 times as much, you've got thousands of times, thousands of times the energy coming from the core of that galaxy. And then we're also going to have radio galaxies and quasars. So they look a lot, these Seiferts look a lot like a spiral galaxy and that's how, I mean, would have been originally classified as a spiral but as people made more and more measurements and uh, Mr. Mr. Seifert, the gentleman who discovered them uh, back in the, when was this, in the 20s, 30s? When he measured these, he actually found that the core was emitting a lot more energy than a typical spiral galaxy. So if you took your average run-of-the-mill spiral galaxy, measured how much, how bright its core was relative to the rest of the galaxy, and measured one of these Seiferts, again, it was not just twice as much or ten times as much, it was thousands of times more energy coming from here. So something unusual is going down is going on, is occurring in that core. Something is happening down in the core of that galaxy. So, all of them have something to do with the black hole at the center. Different instances, different types of galaxies. These are, these are the closest ones. We'll see them eventually as kind of an evolutionary sequence, how the galaxies have changed, and that perhaps quasars have eventually become the Seifert galaxies. 
as they're closer to us and then eventually may become normal galaxies. So there might be actually a progression between these active galaxies and the normal galaxies that we'll talk about in the coming, in coming chapters. So there might actually be, they've changed, they might actually change from one type to another over time. Don't forget when we look at galaxies, we see some as they are almost right now, right? Our galaxy, Andromeda galaxy, that's only two million light years away. It's just as it was yesterday, galactically speaking. Other ones we see as they were 10 million, 100 million, a billion years ago. 10 billion years ago. So we're seeing this whole range of 14 billion years worth of evolution of galaxies. We can see it all at once. So one of the advantages that light does not travel instantaneously is that we get to see that. Otherwise we'd see the entire universe as it is right now and things like quasars wouldn't be visible. Because they haven't been around for 10 billion years. So that's one. That's the Seifert galaxy. Uh, the Seifert galaxies vary in brightness very quickly. And you see this has taken over the period of a, what, about 30 years worth from 1970 pushing up to about 2000. And all that's measured is the brightness of the central portion. And it's just relative to some zero point, so don't worry about what the numbers are. But it gets brighter and it gets fainter and it gets brighter and it gets fainter. On relatively short times, it might only take it a couple of years. If it only takes it a couple years to vary and go from being bright to being faint to being bright again, that means that core can't be any more than that many light years across. It can't be any, it be any bigger than that. It has to be smaller. Otherwise, it wouldn't be able to vary that quick. If you've got something that's 100 light years across, right, and it gets bright all of a sudden, well, this side gets bright right now. 100 years later, this one gets bright. So in order to see the entire brightness change, you've got to wait for the whole thing to finish. You've got to wait for this side to get bright. You've got to wait for this side to get bright. A hundred years later, it's finally fil- finished its brightness increase, and then it starts to decrease. If you've got something one light year across, this side gets bright, this finishes getting bright a year later. So it kind of washes out any variations there. The smaller it is, the smaller variations that you see, the smaller the object. If you're getting a lot of energy from something that is only a few light years across, you could put a star in there, you could put a few stars in there, but you're not going to get the kind of energy you need or the kind of energy that you see based on that. The only thing that will do that as we understand it would be a black hole at the center. And again, as we've talked about with black holes, the black hole itself isn't doing anything. It's just sitting there accreting matter. Once, it get, once that matter gets in the black hole, it's gone. We have no clue what's going on with it. But as it spirals in, it can emit a lot of energy And that's what we're seeing and that's where these variations we're seeing is from material spiraling in around that black hole from maybe light years outside it. So light year, disks light years in size. So anytime we see very small variations, it's telling us that the object is very, very compact. Now radio galaxies, here's a nice picture of a radio galaxy uh, on the top there. Actually two images of it, but that's the radio galaxy. That's one galaxy. Now, that's a very unusual looking galaxy. This looks like a big elliptical galaxy here, right? And if you recall elliptical galaxies from last time, they have no dust, no gas, no star formation. Something wrong there? You got a big dust belt going across it. So it looks like an elliptical galaxy but with a big dust belt going across. Something's really unusual going on here. So could it be two galaxies? Could it be, could it be a collision? Could it be a galaxy, a spiral galaxy, an elliptical galaxy colliding? and we're just seeing one of them edge on and we're seeing the other there. 
or what else could be going on there. Something to explain why this elliptical galaxy has so much so much uh, dust in it because they're not supposed to have any. When we look at it in the radio, here's that same image. Okay, there's that galaxy we just looked at up there. If we look at it in the radio, we see radio emission here. The yellow, the red is the brightest radio emission. Yellows and greens here are where the brightest radio emission is. The visible part is here. They don't look anything alike. If you looked at it in just the radio, it looks nothing like the visible galaxy. In fact, you don't see anything with the visible galaxy. You don't see any of the visible galaxy in the radio. If you take a nice radio picture of it, it looks completely different. One of the reasons astronomers want to look at different wavelengths, well, if you look at just one, if you look at just this, you get one picture. If you look at, ignore that there's the image behind there, if you look at just this radio map, the color coded here, you get another picture of this galaxy. When you put them together, it possibly can help you better understand what is going on in this. So, what if we want to look in x-rays? Well, here's a zoom in in x-rays if you want to zoom in on this central portion. And there's actually, you're getting down, you know, you're not seeing the black hole, but you're getting down to that area and you actually see a jet of material streaming out away from that black hole. Jets are very common in these active galaxies. We see a lot of them. So as material is spiraling into that black hole, it gets thrown out. Some of it gets thrown out perpendicular and ends up forming a great jet here streaming out through space. You know, not just a little jet stream of water, right, what I do here. You're talking things that are, you know, hundreds of thousands of light years across. So this is a big galaxy. You could be talking hundreds of thousands to a million light years across. So it's been able to throw material out to that distance, still keep it with enough energy that we're able to pick up this energy as it collides into smaller particles scattered around. So we do see a lot of those, but this is one that's called a radio galaxy. Uh, Seifert galaxies were unusually bright spiral galaxies. Radio galaxies typically are unusually bright elliptical galaxies. So this one is a little bit unusual, but unusual bright and unusual that they emit as you guessed it, maybe radio radiation. They missed a lot more radio radiation than a typical galaxy. Yeah, ours emits some radio radiation. These are unusual, large, unusually large amounts. Alrighty. We see some other ones. Here's another radio galaxy. In this case, you've got the optical picture underneath, and you've got some couple, ga couple radio galaxies here. The little contours are telling you where the intensity of the radiation is getting harder, higher and higher. So as you get these closer and closer, you're peaking up here. Where you've got a lot of radio radiation coming from this galaxy right here. You have a lot of radio radiation coming from this galaxy right here. There's two different types of these radio galaxies. You have the ones that are lobe dominated. Radio lobes, jets of material spreading out. And you have ones that are dominated by their cores. This is, this is one that's called core dominated. You don't see any jets. Maybe they're there, but you don't really see much. But you do see an intense amount of radio radiation coming from them. So, how can we explain that? We've got two different types of radio galaxies. Are they two different things? Or are they both really the same and just depends on what we're, what we're seeing? And what we actually see is may think is maybe it's just the way we're looking at them. Right? Because we can't go walk around these galaxies and get a three nice three-dimensional view of it. We'd love to. But there's possibilities that depending on where we are in the universe, 
our first image, we might have been standing here. There's that energy source, there's that black hole sending jets of material out. And if we look at it this way, we see those lobes. We see the radio lobes, we see the jets. If we look at it from this side instead, if we happen to be stuck in this location, that jet is coming towards us. Right? It's billions of light years away. It's not going to come striking us anytime soon. But it's coming towards us. So all you're going to see, you're not going to see that jet. You're going to see all this mashed together. And you're going to see a very strong radio source coming from that central galaxy. So we think it's just depending on how we happen to view them. Just as we view a spiral galaxy, we might see it edge on. We might see the flat part. We might see the whole face on and see the spirals. No, we can't control that any more than we can see these radio galaxies. But we think these two types, lobe or core dominated, are actually just a, just, a, just a viewing aspect. How do we view them? So if we're viewing it from a different angle, if we could go take that one of those galaxies and go view it from a billion light years away at a different orientation, we'd actually be able to see it as the other type. All right, and here's some more of those jets. Uh, this is actually... A uh, very nearby galaxy. This is a galaxy in the constellation of Virgo. It's the giant elliptical galaxy at the center of that, that cluster. Remember that had like 4,000 galaxies there? And as you zoom in, visible, visible, and then into the infrared to really look deep down in that galaxy, you see that here you just see the galaxy, but here you start to see some signs of one of the jets of material coming from it. And here you can actually see a central source, so something's still going on down there. Again, still very big. We don't have, you know, you're not getting down to this black hole size yet. It's way down deep inside there. But you can definitely see a jet of material streaming out of that galaxy, of that center of that galaxy. That's where all the energy is coming from. All the energy that we see in these active galaxies is coming from that central core. So we see a lot of these jets in there. Again, they're another sign of activity, of, active, of activeness in the galaxies. All right, the last one, quasars, or quasi-stellar objects, were originally uh, quasi-stellar radio sources. That's how they got their name. Quasi-stellar radio sources. So quasars, how they got their name, being a quasi-stellar radio source. They're actually now uh, often called maybe a QSO. Quasi-stellar object. Quasi-stellar, it looks like a star. So when someone takes an image of this, it looks like a star. To the, it looks like a star through the telescope. In fact, you can see an image of one here. Ignore the fact it's showing you again that it has a jet. But can you see that there's actually seeing diffraction spikes there? And if you recall, I've talked a couple times. You only see those from something that looks like a point to you, to your telescope. So stars show them all the time. Every star looks like a point. These objects looked like stars. So they looked like radio stars, stars that were emitting a lot of radio energy. And they were really unusual stars. They were emitting all sorts of very weird spectral lines. So we talked about whether there's more elements. Right? Well, we started to see some new elements here. What are these things that we can't identify? All sorts of odd elements here that were not, you know, nothing matched up with nothing that we knew. So looked like a star. So looks, looks much like a star, emits a lot more energy. If these things were emitting, I mean, they're emitting so much energy that we can see them across very vast distances. Eventually, we'll finish up about here, uh, we found out that here's the spectrum of the quasar. This is one of the first ones discovered. 
And there's the pattern of lines. They matched up with nothing we were used to. But here they are. One, two, three. It's the same set of hydrogen lines. But instead of being here, where they're supposed to be, they were shifted way off over here. Much further than anything astronomers had ever found before. So not just they were just a little bit. We'd seen red shifts before. We knew that stars were moving this way or that way. We used that for other things. But never seeing a shift that far. So when we go back to Hubble's law, that's telling us that these things are at incredible distances, very, very far away. And in order to be very, very far away, they've got to be the most luminous objects in the universe. So these are some of the brightest things that we ever see in the universe. Otherwise, if they were bright like typical stars or typical galaxies, they'd be invisible. They would not be emitting enough light to be able to travel 10, 12, 13 billion light years to get to us. So I'm going to come back on Wednesday and we'll finish up on quasars and then we'll look deep down into the core and look at the core and talk a little bit more, come back to the black holes and talk a little bit about that and we'll finish up finish up 15 then and hopefully get a start on get a start on six, 16. So if you haven't done the quizzes, make sure you get those. And if you're turning in an exam replacement, I can take them here now if you've got something, or you can submit it digitally on D2L uh, before 6 o'clock. Questions?